By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So I suggest that you and I together learn from the usefulness of a faithful brother. It's not by mistake. It wasn't just a casual off-the-cuff comment that Peter threw in mentioning this person, Silvanus. He says about him, by Silvanus. Silvanus is the, the vehicle. He's the secretary, commonly referred to as the amanuensis. He's the one who wrote down what you and I read when we read the book of 1 Peter. We know that for a person who wrote extensively, he typically had someone who was taking notes while he was thinking out loud. He says, by Silvanus, what? A faithful brother. Can you imagine if he had said, by Silvanus, you know, a guy who's kind of in there and kind of not. He's sort of committed to the church, but sometimes we're not sure. He's committed to some of the things that the church does, but... You know, we just wonder about Sylvanus. Well, how's this really going to turn out? He knew Sylvanus, and I suggest that that is the result of discipleship. The only way a man can become affirmed by affirmed men is if he subjects himself to those affirmed men. And you don't have to go back very far in our text to see that this is the call of every believer. He refers specifically to young men that they would subject themselves to the elders. This is God's design. And the argument for the person who finally arrives at the reality that this is the only way it works many times is, well, there's no one in the church that I could emulate. Really? Is that really true? That God could not, has not provided godly elders in any local church within driving distance of your home? That certainly is not true. God has provided men, specifically, more than a handful of men in our church who are, in fact, trustworthy. I have opportunity from time to time to talk about the men in our church who are in leadership. I have great confidence in saying you can be certain that your life is well-fed and well-protected at the Anchor Bible Church. And you can imagine if we were of the mindset of the dictatorial church that has one guy who's in charge and his staff, that that wouldn't be possible for me to do because I would only be talking about me. But because we truly are devoted to a biblical template, a biblical blueprint of a plurality of leadership, we genuinely keep each other in check. That accountability is absolutely crucial. But there need to be men who are being raised up to fill the same shoes. God's kindness, as our church has grown numerically, we've had the privilege to see God produce the level of maturity necessary in godly men who are clearly above reproach and called to minister to the flock. They desire to give oversight to the flock. Those are the qualifications. Those are some of the qualifications. Here, Peter could say about Silvanus, he has my full stamp of approval in my estimation. It matters what people think. The person, and I've mentioned this to you a number of times, the person who says, I only care what God thinks, I don't care what people think, doesn't realize that he is saying he doesn't care what God thinks. To say you don't care about what people think is to say you don't care about what God has said about your need to think about what people think to be approved by the body. This is why we have an affirmation process in church membership. 
This is why we have an affirmation process in church leadership. We have an extensive process by which we determine who we would subject the children in our church to. But the person who somewhat in kind of a paranoid state says, well, I can never trust anyone. Really? Really? You can't trust God? That he in his wisdom has established those for leadership, even as in our text this morning, he says he will establish you, he will confirm you. How in the world is he going to do that if there aren't people that you can trust? He's only going to confirm and perfect and establish you if you are humble and willing to subject yourself to leadership that's been confirmed and established and perfected. It's God's design. It's how he does it. He says, I have written to you through Sylvanus. What he's saying is, I trust Sylvanus' character to get it right, to say what I would say. He does the writing, but he's writing what is in my heart that God has given to me. Now, who was Sylvanus? If you were to look at Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 22, we'd read, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Why were they leading men? They had shown themselves to be above reproach. They were established as leaders in the church because they had shown themselves to be worthy. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. There, there was a process by which those men were selected. Let me tell you what the process wasn't. A guy shows up and says, hey, I'm ready to lead. Takes time. Takes discipleship. A man who's not willing to be discipled is a man who's not willing to lead. Not really. He only wants power. He wants a position of honor, but he's not willing to be assessed. Not true of Silas, Barnabas, Paul, Judas. He says, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So that was the letter that was sent with these men. And then we go on to read, So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. So a lengthy message is biblical, in case you're wondering. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. In Acts 16, as Paul and Silas were ministering in Thyatira, a woman named Lydia was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things of Paul. God saved her. She and her household were baptized, and she ministered then to them in her home. She herself was approved of being, as being faithful and had the privilege to minister even to them. 
And then Satan sent a demon-possessed slave girl to irritate them. Starting in Acts 16, verse 16, we read, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days. Now, let me just insert here that this is a reflection of the fact that many times what appears to be on the surface to be of the Lord is not and is intended to be thrown in there as a distraction from actual truth. You say, wait a minute, what she's saying is true, right, but she has a demon. And she's also fortune-telling, and she's also bringing great amounts of money to those who are keeping her as a slave girl that as she does the fortune-telling, they are being paid for what she is doing. So there's an integration of truth with demonic falsehood. And the hope of Satan, of course, and the demons involved is that there would be confusion as a result. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he threw his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he was saved, and so was his family. And so Paul can attest to the faithfulness of this man Silas, that he ministered with him. Paul discipled him in ministry. Paul discipled him in the development and the the establishment and development of the church. So not only could Peter affirm him, Paul could as well. In Acts 17, verse 1, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. 
And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So here you see Silas and Paul undergoing great persecution, great affliction, physical abuse and suffering. It goes on to say then, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. In Acts 18, verse 1, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Now, we're talking about Paul. Paul stayed with them, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers. Now listen closely. Watch what's happening here. There is a collective effort in tent making so as to provide whatever is necessary for ministry. Verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. You see that? Paul was able to devote himself completely to the word because faithful men chose to be discipled. They chose to step up and take responsibility, do some of the things that Paul was doing. So Paul then was able to singularly focus upon the word of God and teach the word of God all the more effectively. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. The person who genuinely wants to be involved in the salvation of the lost is genuinely committed to obeying the command of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey Jesus' every command. The person who sits on the sideline and skeptically says, yeah, I don't know, I like some of the things in the church, but other things, you know, I just don't get it. He certainly doesn't bear the spirit of Silas. Silas was willing to be a team player. He was willing to do whatever was necessary. And same with Timothy. And what do we know about Paul's assessment of Silas and Timothy, he approved them. He approved them. They weren't skeptically sitting by with a checklist, waiting for the day when they could say, yeah, I think, I think Paul's, I think he's okay. No. Once it was determined that Paul was approved, they followed him. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, for our proud confidence, this is Paul, 
to the Corinthians, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also as ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. You see that? There is a necessary trusting relationship between the leadership and the rest of the church. That there would be a willingness to say, I see your love for Christ. I see your interest in humility. I see your interest in repentance. I see your interest in faithfulness. I see your interest in discipleship. I see your interest in evangelism. And friends, if you can't lock arms with your local church, something is desperately wrong. This is the only pattern in Scripture by which God saves the lost. If we as a local church are divided by those who will say, yep, I'm ready, I'm committed to this local church, and another group of people for six months or a year or two years who say, yeah, I'm still checking it out, we will not be effective, not nearly to the degree that we otherwise would. If there is a concern, it must be addressed. Do you think that Silas never challenged Paul? you think that Paul never challenged Silas? Of course they did. And again, as I said to you earlier, it's my great privilege to minister with men who are willing to challenge me just as I'm willing to challenge them. You, friends, you need a local church where you can say, I am a member of this local church and I am committed to the evangelism taught from the pulpit so that we, in the very short amount of time that we have on this earth, can collectively and maximally win the lost for Christ, for the glory of God. And it will not happen apart from discipleship. It won't. It can't. It doesn't. There are those who feign evangelism without discipleship, but that's not what it is. I've had plenty of people say to me, I'm so thankful that when I engage in evangelism, I can confidently tell them that at our church, you will be well cared for. You will be shepherded, meaning you'll be fed and you'll be protected. And I think in our culture, so many people come from environments where that's not true, and they simply assume that that's not true about us as well. And to the degree that we fail in that area, it needs to be addressed here In verse 19, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, listen closely, was not yes and no, but yes in him. In other words, there's no duplicity. There's no double-mindedness. For as many are the promises of God in him, they are yes Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Paul could confidently say about Silas and Timothy that they are devoted to the glory of God. He's not saying they're perfect nor sinless, but he's saying you have a ministry team you can trust, and you must trust them. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. 
not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Again, it's a matter of affirmation. Paul could confidently say about them, you're standing firm. Can your leadership in your local church say that about you? That you're standing firm? You say it's none of their business. Of course they can't say it then. If that's the attitude, no, it's about me and Jesus. It's just what I do in my quiet time. It's about me studying my Bible. No, it's not. And yet, because it's passionate pursuit of Western evangelicalism, you think it's biblical. We go on here and read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen to this. Paul in verse 1 Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, again, it's affirmation, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. You think Paul could say that if there were some hesitation on Timothy's part to give affirmation of Paul? Think of it. Paul and Silvanus, and sometimes Timothy. Paul and Silvanus, but Timothy's got these issues with us, and we've just decided to agree to disagree. There's nothing of that. There's unity. There's a passion for unity. There's a willingness to work through things. So that there's unity in doctrine, not necessarily agreeing on the color of the carpet. But there's unity in doctrine. He says then, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. How could he offer grace and peace if he and Silvanus and Timothy didn't bask in that grace and peace together? How can we as a local church offer grace and peace to a lost and dying community if we're busy quibbling over jots and tittles that are not fundamental. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. How do you think they knew of God's choice of the Thessalonians? Was it because they had some insight that God had given them directly? No, Paul explains how he knew of God's election of them. For our gospel, here's how, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's how Paul and Timothy and Silas knew that the people of Thessalonica were of the elect. Because they weren't argumentative. They weren't prideful. They weren't hanging on to some fleshly, idolatrous preference. They said, I want to minister. I want my life to count. I want to serve. I really would hope that ultimately Paul would be able to affirm me. And he did because they were affirmable. How can your leadership affirm you if you won't affirm your leadership? It's impossible. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. For they themselves report about us, what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. See what's happening here? This is all on behalf of Silas and Timothy that Paul's writing all of this. The whole letter, both of the letters, first and second Thessalonians were written on behalf by Paul of 
Timothy and Silas. And so he can say on behalf of them, we, we, the three of us, know these things to be true of you because you subjected yourselves to our leadership. He couldn't say that about Demas. He did initially, but that changed. Demas went apostate. There's so much here, and I'd love to read all of it. I encourage you to read through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and look at the relationship that Paul nurtured with Silas and Timothy, with the believers, but to which they responded. Paul never said, we were sinless, and therefore you knew you could follow us. He said, we were faithful. We were committed to the glory of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, when he comes, Christ, when Christ comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't say that about them if he didn't know them. If they hadn't locked arms together. You see, Sylvanus stood firm in the grace of the sovereign God, and therefore he took responsibility for the life and ministry God gave him through Peter and Paul. But here, in our text, Peter puts much emphasis on his usefulness as a faithful brother. He makes use of Sylvanus' faithfulness, and he mentions it. He draws attention to it. In fact... He wants to be clear about the fact that he holds him in high regard. So he mentions that it is by Sylvanus' hand that he wrote the letter and he simply calls him a faithful brother. And there were sound reasons for which he could do that. In the same way that in any given faithful local church, there is sound reason why leadership can affirm new leadership, as well as the rest of the flock. There's another man who sets an example for us in this passage. There's another useful brother in this text who wasn't always so useful. This is masterful in my mind, that Peter would bring up Silas, a faithful brother, and then he'd bring up John Mark, an unfaithful brother, who became a faithful brother. This is genius. I might be thinking, am I faithful or not? Am I approved or not? Maybe I've done something. Maybe I'm in a shadow of doubt for whatever reason. But watch this. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Is there someone in leadership in our church who can call you my son? As you endeavor to be faithful to Jesus Christ and make disciples of all the nations, that's the sin quinon of Christianity. It's the ultimate responsibility of Christianity to win the lost of all the nations. That's who we are. That's what we are to do. If you never think about that, start thinking about it. That's the mission. If that's your desire, and I believe that it is, if that's your desire, who's your father in the faith? 
who was or who is, maybe it's the same person, maybe it's a number of different people, but who is that person now that you can look to who would say about you, he sends you greetings. My son sends you greetings, and he would be proud to do that. Peter calls Mark his son. But who is Mark, and what's his story? Acts 12. King Herod had just killed the Apostle James. Again, this is a devastating blow to the apostolic team, right? You would imagine if you were an apostle, perhaps I'm next to have my head removed. King Herod had him killed, and seeing that this was a delight to the Jews, he imprisoned Peter. And so Peter would naturally thinking, perhaps it's, it's that time. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. An angel freed Peter from prison, and he went immediately to the house of Mary, where some believers were praying for him, and Mary's son was John Mark. So John Mark was a young man whose mother was clearly devoted to Christ, clearly devoted to the apostles and to their teaching, and she hosted some gathering of believers in her home. Her son was this John Mark who, like many of your children, is growing up in an environment, seeing Christianity take place, and is assessing it. John Mark, is, you can imagine, is assessing his mother, Mary, in the same way that your children either did or are assessing you and your faith. Then an angel freed Peter from prison, right? So God is behind the liberating of Peter. Peter goes to this house, and there is an initial introduction in Acts 12, 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Okay, young man, observing the faith, growing up, watching things unfold. He does a ride-along on a mission trip, and he starts to get involved. But something went wrong. Acts 13, 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And we don't know why, but we know it didn't make Paul happy. Paul was assessing John Mark because it was his responsibility. See, this idea that nobody judges me, it's just me and God, it's not biblical Christianity. Those of you who have participated in our discipleship in WOW and in Ironman, we walked through the scripture showing that we are to assess one another. And Paul condemns the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 for not bringing judgment upon the man who is committing fornication either with his mother or his stepmother. You know, the person who comes to the church and says, you know, I'll join, but I don't want anybody looking at my life. That's not Christianity. It's certainly not discipleship. John Mark was under the scrutiny of a godly leader. And there were concerns about his life. Just so you know, we operate on the principle of unanimity in our decision-making. We always have in our leadership. Why? Because God could easily use one man to help the rest of us understand that we might be headed in the wrong direction, and he's protected us on a number of occasions. Praise God for that one man. And we've seen that happen numerous times. And you say, but John Mark was approved by Barnabas. Exactly. But because they were devoted to unanimity, Barnabas deferred to Paul. We'll see that 
here in a moment. After the council at Jerusalem, where the debate over circumcision was settled, Paul's second missionary journey began. Uh, 1536, Acts 15:36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Not that. Let's not just win people to Jesus and let it fly. Let's actually check on those who have repented and believed in the gospel and made a proclamation of their faith. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There was a problem with why he left. He didn't just, you know, have to get back to school or whatever. He abandoned the ministry. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul committed to shepherding and discipling Silas. Paul, the weather-beaten, more hardcore, yet quite loving apostle, maybe more, a little more committed to protection of the flock, but showing wisdom. Barnabas, on the other hand, whose name means encouragement. Maybe there's hope for John Mark. I believe there's hope for John Mark. And Paul didn't say there wasn't hope. Paul would just say he's not qualified right now. So they deferred one to another. But they talked about it. And no, they didn't come to an exact, precise, simultaneous, and equivalent agreement but they talked about it, they discussed it, and they arrived at what they believed was a spirit-filled move. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. This is Paul on his deathbed. He's in prison. He asks for the books, especially the parchments. He wants the scripture, but he also wants his books so he can study. He says, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. You ready for this? Pick up Mark. Bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. Paul didn't believe in a scorched earth policy. Sorry, you blew it. Paul was willing to assess the man's life, meaning he wanted to arrive at an accurate understanding of that life. Not just, well, you know, forgiveness means we just trust everybody. You are commanded in the scripture to not be naive. You know that the Bible does not command you to forgive and forget? It doesn't command you to forgive, but it doesn't command you to forgive and forget. And it doesn't even say that God forgives and forgets. It says that he forgives and remembers not. And that is different from forgetting. God's omniscient. He doesn't learn. He doesn't forget. The idea is that he does not remember those things against the one whose sins are covered by the death of Christ. So he doesn't apply judgment against them. He doesn't pour his wrath out on them because he poured his wrath out on his son for their sake. Therefore, he remembers not the sins against those who repent and are willing to expose their sins and confess them and and truly forsake them. Sad, isn't it? Demas? 
Demas uh, twice is mentioned elsewhere by Paul. Close associates in ministry. And here Paul sadly he declares he's, um, he loves this present world. He loves the world. He deserted me. You don't want to be that man, that woman. You don't want to be that person that one day someone who loves you and is poured into you would have to say, man, things were going well as far as I could tell, but when it came to an exposure of this person's life, it proved to be cancerous, rotten to the core, apostate, abandonment of the faith. You want to be like Mark, because none of us are Silas. <laughs> Uh, as far as the record goes, we don't know what took place in Silas's life, but we do know that Mark blew it, and that Barnabas, being committed to him, nurtured and strengthened and cared for him, perfected, uh, sanctified him. Now, the Lord does the work of sanctification, but it requires people to be involved in that. And so Paul could gladly say, <laughs> pick up Mark. It's time. I believe that's what we as a church are about. I believe that we are passionately and publicly committed to the restoration of men who fail. The tragic reality in many men's lives is they refuse to be exposed. They just want to be considered to be worthy, righteous, but unwilling to undergo faithful discipleship. But in some cases, perhaps many cases, the reason a man doesn't want to undergo discipleship is because he doesn't want to be exposed. But the man who wants to be exposed wants discipleship in his local church. And this brings me great joy to even talk about this because this is who you are as a church. We're known for a number of things, but one of them is discipleship. That's what people are saying. And if there is even one of you who is behind the curve in where you should be and being affirmed by the body, it's not about ultimately being affirmed by the, the leadership. If there's even one of us who's behind the curve in being affirmed by the church, let's shore that up, shall we? Maybe you're a Mark, maybe you're a Silas, but how do we know if you won't engage in obedience to Christ to be discipled so that you too could disciple? We could never know if you won't do that. See here, Peter calls Mark my son. He found him to be trustworthy, which immediately brings to mind these words from Paul in 2 Timothy 2, these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Peter knew what it was to have been trusted with ministry responsibility and then to fail miserably. Amen? Peter knew what it was like to be devoted to Christ and to deny him. In a sense, momentarily to abandon the gospel, to abandon Christ uh, him? No, I don't know him. Jesus said he would do it. No, I won't. I'll go to the death for you. I'll go to prison for you. And he abandons him. He denies him. 
Peter knew what it was to have been trusted with spiritual responsibility, leadership responsibility, and then to jump ship. So he can confidently say to other men, subject yourselves to the older men. Subject yourselves to the elders. See, he knew what it was to have been restored unto effectiveness in ministry. There is a process by which men are determined to be fit for ministry. And when there is a substantial disqualifying failure, there must be a time of testing, and that test must result in a clear and obvious restoration. And for John Mark, this came through his spiritual fathers, men that he chose to trust despite their failures. It's very unfortunate when a man has not yet been deemed faithful and therefore has been trusted with ministry responsibility and he considers himself to be the assessor of all the men in the church. He considers himself the church watchdog. In particular, when he's in a position of leadership or been granted a position of leadership without having first been tested, this is immensely discouraging for those who have been tested because they know their character. There are those who think they can quickly size up a church in a matter of 30 minutes. Proverbs 19.2 says, It is not good for a person to be without knowledge, and he who hurries his footsteps errs. Proverbs 29.20, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 18, 13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. This one man, Demas, had been a close ally and servant with Paul. In Colossians 4, 14, this is Paul speaking about these men. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. He calls upon the character and the word and the life of Demas to give greetings to the people in Colossae. What happened? What happened? Scripture doesn't tell us, but something happened. Paul continued to assess his life, which is important. My life needs to be assessed for the rest of my life so that you know that I haven't gone apostate. And that is true with every one of you as well. If I'm not willing, how in the world would you be willing? And let me tell you, I'm willing. Souls are at stake. Eternal souls are at stake. Many, many, many souls who've never entered this building are at stake. How will we reach them if you don't know I'm trustworthy? How will we reach them if I don't know you're trustworthy? Sin loves privacy. Who are you accountable to? Philemon 23, 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. What happened? Demas was on the list. Paul continued to assess him. He went off the rails. When a man in leadership has been exposed and publicly addressed as Scripture requires, there must be a time of restoration about which everyone in the church is aware. Hiding these things from the flock only salves the conscience of the offender and destroys the church's trust in the leadership. 2 Timothy 4, 9. I read to you earlier, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Pick up Mark. Bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. 
There's so much in the book of 1 Peter on the grace of God. And we'll pick up with that next week. Father, what pride-destroying truths you have laid out for us in 1 Peter. You have, through our faith, assured us of an imperishable, unfading eternity with you. But we believe that that belief, according to Paul the Apostle in Philippians 1, verse 29, has been granted to us because you're sovereign and you're a God of grace. Lord, I pray that you would humble me. I pray that where my life falls short and creates doubts and questions in people's minds, and rightfully so, that you would expose that about me. Lord, I pray for every man in our leadership that you do the same for them. Lord, give us enough failures to keep us humble. You're sovereign. You can do that. I believe you do do that. Give us enough success in discipleship that we would be encouraged to encourage the John Marks. Lord, help us to be humble as we continue to look into your word that we will be known by your grace. Amen.